morning for the reading of God's Word as we uh, press on in our consideration of various um, uh, psalms from the book of Psalms. Tonight we consider Psalm 135, Psalm 135. Dear friends in Christ, let us hear with reverence and awe the Word of our God. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, And all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon the proclamation of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, a guide to our way. And we ask once again that by your spirit you would make the word understandable to us this evening, illuminate us, open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word, and grant unto me, your unworthy servant, the grace to declare your word with clarity and power for the glory of your name and for the edification and building up of your people. We ask these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this evening, the title of my sermon is Yahweh Has Chosen Jacob for Himself And remember, when I refer to Yahweh, that's uh, if you are reading your Old Testament, when the word Lord shows up in all capital letters, that's a, a signal to us as English readers that the translators are translating the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, which is God's covenant name. Yahweh has chosen Jacob for himself. You know, friends, one of the most contentious subjects of controversy amongst professedly Bible-believing Christians, is the subject of divine election. In other words, the biblical doctrine that says that God has chosen a people for himself from the midst of a larger group of people. 
Now, for example, let's say that you find yourself in the midst of a large uh, gathering of uh, people from various different church backgrounds, professing uh, Christians from different church backgrounds, and let's just say that you want to get an argument started. Well, and not that I recommend this, uh, don't be, let's not be uh, contentious Calvinists, but let's say you're fi- you find yourself amidst a group of believers from different church backgrounds, you want to start an argument, well, here's a piece of advice. You want to do that? Bring up the subject of election and then just sit back and watch the sparks fly. Now, of course, among the professing Christian churches, there are different ideas out there about God's election and different answers to the question of why God chooses those whom he chooses. But no one who claims to be a Bible-believing Christian can outright reject the idea of God choosing a people, because the idea of God choosing a people for himself to be his own special treasure is an idea that is woven into the very fabric, the very warp and woof of Holy Scripture from beginning to end. The idea of election, of God choosing a people for himself, is not some obscure uh, concept that you can find maybe in some, uh, some passages of Scripture that are kind of obscure. This is a theme that is very prominent throughout the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. So the doctrine of divine election, however one understands it, is indeed taught throughout the Word of God. It cannot be ignored. One passage of God's Word where the theme of God's election or choice of His people is prominent is, of course, our passage for this Lord's Day evening, Psalm 135, and I believe one of the central or uh, one of the pivotal passages of or parts of this passage is verse 4, where the psalmist writes, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Jacob and Israel, referring, uh, these are uh, these are referring to the same individual, the same uh, Uh, the same group of people. Again, as we approach this passage of God's Word, we see that the theme of Israel's election by God is strong in this psalm. In fact, I would contend that the theme of God's election of Israel is arguably the central theme in this particular psalm. It, It undergirds everything that the psalmist says here. Though Psalm 135 reveals the Lord, reveals Yahweh, to be absolutely sovereign over all of creation, and therefore, by implication, sovereign over all of the nations of humanity, as verse 6 makes abundantly clear. Nonetheless, the psalmist tells us that Yahweh has graciously chosen Israel as his own possession. Now, where does Psalm 135 come from? Who wrote it? What were the historical circumstances that led to its it's writing. We know that it is inspired by the Holy Scripture, as all the Scriptures are, that, that this is part of God-breathed Scripture. But in terms of the human author and the, uh, the circumstances that God and His providence used to uh, lead the human author to write what He wrote, well, uh, it's difficult to tell. Psalm 135 is anonymous. Uh, the psalm does not mention the author by name, as is the case in other psalms. And And in terms of its historical setting, while the psalmist mentions the temple, it does not indicate whether the temple in view is Solomon's temple or the rebuilt temple that was constructed after uh, Judah returned from its exile 
in Babylon, though some Bible scholars seem to be convinced that this psalm must be regarded as post-exilic, as having been written after the return of the exiles, and thus the, the second temple. But whatever the case may be, it's clear if you read this psalm carefully, and uh, it's clear that this psalm uh, has been composed for use in worship services that took place in the Old Covenant temple. So this was composed for use in the temple liturgy. So let's dive into our passage for this Lord's Day evening, and let's first of all hone in on the first, uh, the opening four verses of this passage, where we find a call to praise Yahweh for his gracious choice. And if you're following along on your sermon outline, this is the first main point. We see here a call to praise Yahweh for his gracious choice. The psalmist begins in verse 1 with a hallelujah with a call to praise Yahweh, to praise the Lord. And so he writes, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise Him, O servants of the Lord. Here we have a triple call to praise. We are to praise Yahweh, to praise the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Now what is the name of the Lord? Well, God reveals His character, His attributes by revealing his name. Uh, the name of the Lord is not simply uh, a designation or a title or an identity marker. It, is, uh, uh, it reveals something about the character of the Lord. And in this context, it would seem to indicate especially God's personal saving covenantal presence with his people as represented or symbolized by the temple. The temple indicated and symbolized God's personal saving presence with his people. We are told in scripture that God put his name on first the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. The Shekinah glory of the Lord shone in the Holy of Holies in the temple. God's name resided in the temple, his personal saving presence with his people. The name of the Lord also indicates the way that he reveals himself in his covenant. God's name represents his attributes revealed in his word, his covenant, and his mighty works. And and that is signified by his personal saving covenantal presence symbolized in the temple. But who is called to praise the Lord? Well, the final uh, uh, praise in verse 1 of this triple praise says, Praise him, O servants of the Lord. Who are these servants of the Lord? Well, Uh, Verse 2 goes into more detail. The psalmist fleshes this out. When he describes the servants of the Lord, he describes you who stand where? In the house of the Lord. That's the temple. That's the temple in Jerusalem. In the courts of the house of our God. This opening call to praise appears to be addressed specifically to what we might call the clergy, the priests and the Levites in particular. The priests and the Levites were entrusted with the responsibility of of leading the people in worship, sacrifice, and praise in the temple. Again, verse 2 draws this out. But that doesn't mean that uh, that if you're not part of the clergy class or if you're not a priest or a Levite that you can just ignore uh, this call to praise the Lord. After all, by extension, all of God's people are servants of Yahweh, servants of the Lord, called by God to offer Him sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We 
brothers and sisters, we are a priesthood of all believers called upon to offer God sacrifice and thanksgiving in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this indeed applies to us. And let's also remember, as I mentioned, that the, one of the jobs of the priests and the Levites was to lead the people in worshiping the Lord. So these special servants of the Lord were meant to lead the people in their general service and worship of the Lord. So this applies uh, to all of us. Now, I want you, uh, brothers and sisters, as we make our way through this psalm, I want you to notice the implicit temple theology. A temple theology is very prominent in the scriptures, especially uh, in various portions of the Old Testament. Remember, as I mentioned, the temple was the place where Yahweh, the Lord, had chosen to put his name. Now, that doesn't mean that God's presence was limited to the temple. God is omnipresent. All of God is present everywhere at all times. All of God is present here. All of God is present there. All of God is present at the back of the sanctuary and underneath your feet. All of God is present everywhere. God is beyond space, time, or matter. He dwells in a domain uh, uh, by himself, if you will, set apart from his creation, though, though he is present everywhere within his creation. But nevertheless, he chooses to put his special covenantal presence, his name, on the temple. The temple, under the old covenant, symbolized the place where God's realm of heaven and man's realm of earth intersected and interlocked. There is a domain and a realm that we don't see. where It's veiled from us in this current age. But it isn't just, uh, brothers and sisters... It isn't just that heaven is up there in the sky, beyond outer space. Heaven is certainly an exalted, transcendent place, but it's God's domain, and it's present here. That's why in the scriptures we we are told that when believers gather together for worship, angels are present. Angels are present here tonight. Indeed, Jesus, by his Spirit, is really present here. He's present in a special way. His name is here as we, the living temple in Christ, gather together to worship the Lord. This temple theology permeates uh, much of the scriptures, and it's an important theme to understand. Now, of course, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant temple. For Jesus is revealed in scripture to be the living temple. The word made flesh who came to do what? Who came to tabernacle to make his dwelling in our midst. And we, his church, as his chosen ones, are a living temple in union with Christ, the living temple. Christ is the new and final temple, and Christ's saving work brings about the new creation, a new creation where the entire cosmos will ultimately be a holy dwelling place, a holy temple unto the Lord. And we need to keep this in mind as we read psalms like this, which talk about of the temple and worship that takes place in the temple. Worship is not just a bunch of Christians getting together and hanging out with each other and singing some praises to Jesus. Worship is a meeting with the sovereign triune God where God comes down to us and is present with us in a special way. His name is in our midst because Jesus is in our midst. And so with this, uh, this concept or understanding in mind as as this kind of holy worship is anticipated and, or, or rather extolled in this psalm. It goes on in verse 3 to say, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is what? The Lord is good. 
God is indeed great. He's awesome. He's sovereign. He's powerful. But he's also good. The Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. Yahweh is here extolled as being good. His goodness is seen in his gracious choice of Israel to be his own people, his own special treasure. And it goes, it's interesting, the psalmist says, sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. What is the it here? Is the it the Lord, or is it the singing of praises to his name? Well, it could be, uh, you could interpret it either way. I think it's probably saying that that singing praises to the Lord is a lovely uh, and beautiful thing. But the Lord himself is also lovely and beautiful in his holy divine character. But in any case, we are to extol and praise the Lord for he is good. And again, as verse 4 says, verse 4 tells us the reason why the Lord is good and why it is a good thing and a lovely thing to sing praise to his name. Why? For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, for his own possession. Again, friends, Yahweh's goodness is seen in his sovereign, gracious choice of Jacob or Israel to be his own possession. Now, I want you to notice something here. It doesn't say the Lord has chosen Jacob to bless Jacob and to give him health, wealth, and prosperity and, to, uh, you know, and just to to focus on Jacob and Jacob's need. Yes, the Lord has chosen Jacob and for himself, but the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. In other words, the Lord chooses us for himself. While God's electing choice obviously benefits those of us who by grace are chosen, his choice is God-centered, not man-centered. We don't exist, or God doesn't exist for our glory. God is not our cosmic bellhop. He's not there to serve us. We exist for his glory. He's chosen us for himself and for the praise of his glorious grace. And we always need to remember that And when we consider this biblical doctrine of election. But next, as we move on to the second section of this psalm, verses 5 through 14, let us consider next the great power of Yahweh displayed in carrying out his purpose of election. What we have here in this next section is the great power of Yahweh displayed in carrying out his purpose of election. This is the second point in your sermon outline. And notice this section, verses 5 through 7. Let me read these verses again. It says this, For I know, that the psalmist is testifying of his knowledge of the Lord. He says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and in all deeps. In other words, Yahweh the Lord, he is omnisovereign and omnipotent, all-powerful and all-sovereign. He causes the vapors to ascend from the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Why is the psalmist focused here on the weather? Well, more about that in just a few moments. But here, the greatness of God is contrasted with the powerlessness of the heathen idols. And it's interesting in verse 6, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Where does he do whatever he pleases? Well, in heaven and in earth, and in the seas, and in all deeps. In other words, verse 6 underscores 
the power and omnipotence of God who is able to do whatever he pleases in all realms of his creation, not just in, uh, not just in his heavenly realm, in the heaven of heavens, but in, among the galaxies and stars here on terra firma, on the earth, in the seas. And the seas are a great and mysterious uh, place. Uh, I've I think I've heard it said that we know more about outer space and the mysteries of outer space than we do about the space that exists uh, in the ocean, about the life in the ocean and all of the uh, uh, complexities and scientific wonders of the ocean. Well, he mentions the seas. We need to try to put ourselves in the shoes or sandals of an ancient Near Eastern uh, person. The ancient, in the ancient Near Eastern mind, the seas often represented the forces of chaos that, that chaos that even from a pagan perspective, even the gods were not able to control. But here, the psalmist declares that there is a God who does indeed control even the chaotic waters of the sea. His name is Yahweh. And unlike the idols of the nation, Yahweh is the true and living God. So here, Yahweh is shown to be sovereign even over the chaotic forces of the sea. And then in verse 7, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. You know, in, in that particular region of the ancient Near East, the pagan god Baal was the one who was believed to be in control of the weather. He was worshipped as, as a, I believe, a god of the storms, the god of the weather. But here the psalmist reminds his readers that it is not Baal who controls the weather. Rather, it is Yahweh who controls the weather, who sends the rains that waters the crop and brings forth a fruitful, abundant harvest. So God's sovereignty over the created order is extolled. And, and once again, uh, uh, we have our focus on, on that theme here in verses 5 through 7. But then in verses 8 through 14, we see a, a polemic uh, that is mentioned uh, against the nations. And we read this. Let me just read these verses again. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He recalls to mind God's mighty acts of redeeming his people from their slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh and bringing his people into the promised land. It says, He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations and slew mighty kings. And then he lists a few of them. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. These were mighty ancient kings that were uh, well known in that region of the world. And all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. And by the way, as an aside in verse 14, when it says the Lord will judge his people, that term judge, uh, I believe, is being used here in this context, not in the sense of a judgment of condemnation, but sometimes the word judge means to rule. The judges of ancient Israel were rulers. They were saviors of the people. They delivered the people from their, their enemies. So this is a promise that God will rule his people, that he will be uh, their savior. Now, what is the point here in this section, and how does this relate to our theme of election? Well, think about it, friends. In this fallen world, who is it that usually 
runs the show in our fallen, sin-cursed world. In this fallen world, it is usually the bullies, the abusers, the tyrants, the oppressors. They are usually the ones who run the show. Figures like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. These were just a few ancient examples of such beast-like bullies and oppressors. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, the sovereign Lord over creation, defeated these ancient, powerful, bestial bullies and abusers who represented the forces of oppression. Yahweh's mighty acts of redeeming his people from Egypt and conquering the promised land were powerful evidences of God's electing love for his people. He chose his people and he gave them an inheritance. He didn't just choose them and then leave them on their own. He redeemed them and he gave them a place, a name and a place to dwell in, a place where he himself would dwell in their midst. These mighty acts of Yahweh were also powerful demonstrations of the Lord's victory over the satanic bullies of this fallen world and as well as his vindication of his own people. The supporting themes here in these verses are the themes of victory and vindication. The Lord would be victorious over his enemies and the enemies of his people. The Lord would vindicate his people. How does that apply to us living in this new covenant age? Well, friends, this points us again to Jesus. Through his Son, Jesus Christ, our God and Father in heaven, has defeated the ultimate tyrants, sin, death, and the devil. Jesus Jesus conquered them all on the cross and by his resurrection. By his resurrection. His Christ's victory on the cross and by his resurrection not only guarantees the eternal salvation of God's elect, praise God, it does that, but his redemptive victory also guarantees the ultimate defeat of Satan and his tyrannical servants and the bringing in. It also guarantees the bringing in of the new creation, a new cosmos, one that is freed from the presence of tyrants and oppressors, one where God's people will enjoy the freedom and joy of his presence in security and forever. Praise be to God. So as we, as New Covenant uh, believers in Christ, as we read passages like this that speak of God rescuing his people from their slavery in Egypt, defeating the Pharaoh, defeating Sihon and Og and, and so forth, as we read uh, passages like this, we are to be reminded of our our Lord Jesus Christ's victory over the forces of the evil one, the forces of Satan, and his victory over sin and death itself. His atoning, substitutionary atoning sacrifice has defeated a sin and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Praise be to God. And so after speaking of of this victory of the Lord... As we consider the final section of this psalm, verses 15 through 21, we note in conclusion the high privilege of God's chosen people in knowing and worshiping the living God. The psalmist here in this final section uh, highlights the high privilege that it is for us as God's chosen people to know and to worship the living God. We see in verses 15 through 18 
some poetic mockery of the utter vanity and powerlessness of the pagan gods. Notice again these words. The psalmist writes, The idols of the nations are but silver and gold. He's talking about the pagan, Gentile, unbelieving nations. What about those idols? What about those other so-called gods that were worshipped by Israel's neighbors? The psalmist writes, The idols of the nation are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. In other words, they're lifeless. They're dead. They're not alive. And then he goes on to say, those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Again, brothers and sisters, here the psalmist engages in some poetic mockery of the utter vanity and powerlessness of pagan idols. And such idolatry renders the worshipers of such idols as powerless and contemptible themselves, as are the idols they worship, as verse 18 makes clear. And this language here in Psalm 135 is, is almost word for word the same as what we, what we read back in Psalm 115. If you look at Psalm 115, let me read verses 3 through 8. Turn back to Psalm 115. Let me start at verse 2. In Psalm 115, the psalmist writes, Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? I mean, Israel worshipped this invisible God, that, uh, and Israel was forbidden from making uh, depictions of their God. And so the, the Gentile pagans around them would say, Well, what God do you worship? Where is your God? He says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Sound familiar? They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. And the fact that this polemic, this anti-pagan, anti-idolatry polemic is repeated in Scripture here in Psalm 135 uh, should indicate to us that the Holy Spirit wants us to sit up and take notice This is important. Our God is not powerless like the gods of the false religions. Our God is the true and living God. And as it says in verse 18, those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. The question is, who are you trusting? In whom are you trusting? Now, notice the irony here. Yahweh, the Lord, is himself the maker of heaven and earth. He is the true and living God. But the so-called gods of the unbelieving Gentiles are themselves the work of man's hands. They worship the work of their own hands. We are the work of the divine potter's hands. We are the work of his hands. Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth and of you and me. Again, notice the irony. Those who make and put their trust in idols of their own creation, whether those idols be mental idols or material idols or a combination of both, show themselves thereby to be spiritually dead, spiritually spiritually lifeless, powerless, and contemptible. That's the thrust of, of what the psalmist or what the spirit through the psalmist is saying here. So what is the response of God's chosen ones as we consider the vanity and the powerlessness of the idols of the nations and of false religion, well, the closing section in verses 19 through 21 makes it clear. 
O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Here we have a final call to praise addressed to all of God's people in their various categories and callings. This, uh, this psalm, while it opened with a call for uh, the, the priests and the Levites in particular to, uh, to praise the Lord, all of God's people are included in the final call to bless and serve and praise the Lord. The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, that was the priestly house, the house of Levi, the Levitical priests, And then more generally, you who revere revere the Lord, bless the Lord. All of the callings and categories of God's people are called upon to praise the Lord. And then verse 21 uh, brings this this beautiful and powerful psalm uh, to conclusion when it says, Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. And then the final hallelujah, praise the Lord. God's name, his personal covenantal saving presence with his people, dwelt in his temple in Jerusalem. The old city of Jerusalem and its temple point us to God's incarnation in the Lord Jesus Christ and point us to the Holy Spirit's presence in the new Jerusalem, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to make of this? Well, in closing, friends, let me offer to you a couple of uh, points to to consider. The immense privilege of being delivered from the vanity and spiritual bondage of idolatry and of knowing the true and living God is powerfully highlighted in this passage. Dear listener, let me ask you, do you consider it to be a privilege to know Yahweh, the true and living and triune God revealed in Holy Scripture? It is a privilege to know the true and living God. What we do when we gather for worship on the Lord's Day is indeed a great privilege. It might not always feel that way, especially if if you're tired or weary or you have a lot of things on your mind and it's hard to focus on worship, but it is a privilege to gather together to worship our God. May we be continue to be diligent in doing so and attending upon these means of grace. But I think the way that this psalm ends points to the fact that the goal of divine election is true worship. Why has God chosen us? Well, he has chosen us for himself. He has chosen us to be his own possession. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has chosen us in Christ in order that we as his redeemed people might commune with and worship him both now and forever. And I think a shorter catechism puts it well in the answer to the very first question, what is the chief end of man? You know the answer. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen. That's what Psalm 135 is about. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and Father in heaven, We thank you that you are good, and we thank you that in sovereign grace and mercy, in spite of our many sins and demerits, in sovereign grace and mercy, you have chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and that you have chosen us unto holiness. You have chosen us to belong to yourself, 
You have redeemed us in Christ. You have renewed us by your Spirit. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us grace uh, to recognize what an immense and undeserved privilege that is. And may this doctrine of election not just be uh, a dry and dusty doctrine. May it be something that pulsates within us and that drives us to see the wonder of worship. We ask that you would help us to be true worshipers who desire to glorify and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. As we close our time of worship, let's rise and we'll sing together as our closing hymn number 159, Abide With Me, 159.